Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This podcast is intended to be listened to in order, starting at episode 1. This is episode 10, A Bar Named Heaven. The bar is called heaven And the band in heaven They play my favorite song Play one more Welcome to the last scheduled episode of Dakota Spotlight Season 1. In this episode, we're going to do just two things. First, I want to present to you just a type of story or scenario about what possibly happened that night to Victor. It's a story that I believe is both full of truths, but also speculation. Some of it is absolutely accurate and true, and some of it we will never know for sure unless certain people speak up in the future. And even then, the question remains, is that the truth? After that, I want to tell you what I believe Victor Newberry was thinking and feeling just before he died. That's a weird thing for me to say, I agree. It sounds strange just saying it, believe me. In the end, I think we all agreed on one thing, something I said in the first episode. A man died. A man died and there was widespread confusion and suspicion about what actually happened to him. And yes, people die every day, so why Victor? Why did I tell the story of this one man? Well, I know the answer now, and I'll share that when I tell you about Victor's last thoughts before he passed away. But I couldn't have answered that question accurately when I started out on this journey. When I spoke to Johnny Newberry that first time, all I knew was whenever I turned on the national political news, I felt sick to my stomach, and I wanted to think about something else instead for a while. As far as I knew, looking into Victor's death was a type of escape from all that. A surrogate life, perhaps. And even at the time when I interviewed Ray and Tina Havelock, the first persons brave enough to give me some real answers, I still didn't understand why I was doing this. And other people wondered, too, why I was doing this. I got an email early on from someone who asked, Why are you telling this story exactly? Lots of people die. Do you think that Victor's life was more important than other people's lives? Whoever you are, you missed the point in the most incredible way. No, I don't think that Victor's life was more important than any other human being throughout all of history. What I've been trying to say is that Victor Newberry's life was just as important as anyone else's life throughout all of history. One person who I've been calling Phil sat on a bar stool and boastfully and confidently turned Victor's death into what I felt was a cheap story. He was certain that East Coast connections had whacked Victor and killed him. He was certain. When I asked him to take part in this podcast, though, he went running for safe cover. Phil might be an entertaining big mouth, but when it came down to it, what really came seeping through the seams of his character, at least in my opinion, was cowardice. Nor am I courageous, I never have been, and I had no explanation for why I was suddenly doing this. And yes, people have asked me, aren't you afraid? 
afraid of pissing off law enforcement, afraid of local bullies, afraid of the three strangers, isn't it safer to leave it all alone? Yes, it is. It is safer. It's safer to do nothing, certainly. The only risk you face when doing nothing is getting to the end of your life and realizing that you spent all your time doing nothing. Why did I spend what is now about 10 months of my free time attempting to find out what happened to a man I never even met? I know, I should probably have my head examined. As you might have guessed, I'm not currently in a relationship. What woman, after all, would put up with a 54-year-old man who has spent pretty much every waking moment outside of work sifting through documents, writing, interviewing, and then thinking about downtown Glenola, North Dakota on December 26, 2014? That woman would need to have her head examined, or at least be a very independent and curious, understanding soul. Of course, the world continues to amaze and surprise us. There's probably a mathematical algorithm that exists that would prove that whoever she might be, she's out there somewhere. And speaking of mathematical algorithms, I want to start this first segment of this final episode, the segment in which I will tell you a story, a possible explanation for what might have happened that night. I want to kick it all off by talking about an algorithm. For those of you who love movies, maybe you'll recognize the following dialogue. I'll start with just a couple lines. Ready? Here goes. They got this guy in Germany, Fritz something or other. Or is it? Maybe it's Werner. Anyway, he's got this theory. Recognize that movie, anyone? This is from a movie by the Coen brothers. No, not that famous movie called Fargo, named after Fargo, North Dakota, but a different movie named The Man Who Wasn't There. In this scene, a defense lawyer is meeting with his client, a woman accused of murder. The lawyer is talking about something called the uncertainty principle, which was a real thing articulated by a German physicist in 1927. The theory goes, if you want to test something, you know, scientifically, how, how the, the planets, planets go around, around the sun, what sunspots are made of, why the water comes out of the tap, well, you, you gotta, gotta look, look at, at it. But sometimes you look at it, you're looking changes it. You can't know the reality of what happened or what would have happened if you hadn't have stuck in your own goddamn schnoz. So there is no what happened. Actually, the Coen brothers got it wrong, although probably on purpose. The uncertainty principle is often confused with a different theory named the observer effect. This theory, which is really what the lawyer in this movie is referring to, states that simply observing a situation inevitably changes that situation. So, in other words, Looking at something changes it. They call it the uncertainty principle. It sounds strange, I know, but even Einstein apparently thought there was something to it, as they point out in the movie. Sure, it sounds screwy, but even Einstein says the guy's onto something. Sometimes the more you look, the less you really know. In, in a way, it's the only fact there is. Well, I don't believe that my looking into the death of Victor Newberry changed the events that happened that night. I won't go that far. But I know one thing. Looking into the death of Victor changed me. It changed me and the way I look at a lot of things. It altered me. Victor died, and then my life changed. Thank you. 
There was a time when the people of Glen Ullin and Victor's friends and family only knew certain patches of the story about Victor's death. The town was flooded with questions. I know I'm not able to answer every single question, but if nothing else, I hope that you have a better understanding of what Victor's last night on Earth was like. And not only that, I hope you have a better understanding of who Victor Newberry was. But anyway, let me tell you about a possible explanation for the night Victor died. This is a theory laced with facts and speculation. The speculation is used only where pieces of the puzzle were missing. I said last time that I found myself hoping that the end of the story would be whatever ending was the least sad of all. There were lots of potential sad endings, but Tiffany just leaving Victor was a really sad version. I found myself hoping it wasn't true. And also, isn't one of our biggest fears that of being wrongfully accused of something we didn't do? Tiffany was not a very credible witness herself, perhaps, but for the sake of being fair and thorough, I gave her a whole bunch of benefit of the doubt, and I looked at the pieces of the puzzle. This is what I came up with. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. When Victor left his home that day for work, he had no idea that this would be his last night on Earth. He wasn't even really planning on drinking much. You shouldn't, really, while on painkillers. The stiffness in his back was still there, but the medication helped. He might have a drink or two. Best to take it easy. But Victor had no idea that he would be meeting another addict that day. In fact, Victor didn't understand yet that he himself was an addict. He was not a drug addict. He may have been an alcoholic, I'm not exactly sure on that, but even that is not what I'm talking about. Victor was, in a way, addicted to women. By all accounts, Victor chased women. He even had a nickname, Dirty Red. Some might call that being a sex addict, but for Victor, it was about a lot more than just the sex, even if he wasn't aware of that himself. What Victor Newberry was chasing all those years was not sex or women, but rather, it was a feeling. It wasn't a feeling between his legs. The feeling he was chasing belonged somewhere else. It was a feeling that he had only momentarily felt off and on again as a child, the few times his mother held him like a mother should hold her son. Victor was chasing women to replace a void in his heart, the void his mother left in him when she abandoned him. Victor learned early in life that women, such as mothers, they come and they go. They love you, and then they leave you. They vanish and turn on you on a dime. So really, it's best to get a little shot of warmth whenever you can. Take what you can while you can. Victor parked his car and went into JR's for what would be his last shift. Another addict and her brother and friend came in. Tiffany's addiction was of another kind, and Victor had what she needed, alcohol. And Victor enabled her and fed her that alcohol. 
free of charge. Victor and Tiffany were an accident or a crime just waiting to happen. Witnesses, including Tiffany's brother Dave, saw Victor and Tiffany making out outside the bar. Tiffany would later get tested at 0.2% alcohol, which is a lot. At 0.2, people experience blackouts. And for you to understand my story about that night, it's important for you to understand the difference between a blackout and passing out. If you pass out, you're unconscious, but during an alcohol-induced blackout, you are conscious and functioning. You just can't remember what happened two minutes ago. Tiffany and Victor were kissing and making out outside the bar. Tiffany had reached a blackout stage. Victor was pleasantly surprised that this young woman was down for some fun. So, he went inside and he told Carrie Billman to watch the bar. He said he'd be right back, and he fully intended to come back just as soon as he scored a quick shot of love in his veins, that feeling he had been searching for since the day his mother let him down. Three minutes later, Victor and Tiffany are driving down the gravel road, and Victor parks in the ditch. Who knows what they talk about while driving out there. By the time they get there, Tiffany doesn't even remember leaving the bar. Victor makes his move on Tiffany, the woman who was kissing him just a couple minutes earlier. For whatever reason, though, Tiffany comes out of her blackout. Suddenly, she has no idea where she is and what the hell is going on. Maybe Victor has his hand up her shirt. Tiffany tells Victor to stop, but maybe he persists. Maybe Tiffany digs her fingernails into Victor's wrist, causing him to bleed. She scratches his face. Who knows, maybe she punches him like she will punch her friends at Doc's bar just 30 minutes later. Victor is stunned and yet not surprised at all. He has learned long ago that women turn on him. One minute this woman was kissing him and accepting him, and the next minute she's lashing out and rejecting him. In that instant, for Victor, Tiffany Elwood represents everything he learned as a young boy. Love is incredibly conditional. It is short-term and temporary. But luckily, perhaps for Tiffany, Victor is not a violent man when angered. Victor's wife Nikita told us that Victor would become quiet and cold and distant when he was upset or angry. And the only way to distance yourself from someone when you're parked in a car at night is to get out of the car. So Victor, he got out of the car to let off steam and perhaps to urinate. What happens next is hard to say. Maybe Victor just passed out. That's very possible. Or perhaps he was so annoyed with Tiffany's sudden change that he purposefully ignored her angry demands to be taken back to town immediately. He wouldn't hit her, but maybe Victor wanted Tiffany to suffer just a little. He couldn't make his mother suffer for abandoning him, but he could let this one girl wait. And if her anger escalated, which is very possible, maybe she got out of the car and hit him again, in the face or elsewhere. Regardless of why he became unconscious, the following happened. Based on what I've been told and what we have learned, I don't think that this was the first person that Tiffany had seen pass out. Probably not by a long shot. She was an addict, and she had seen plenty of people pass out. So maybe she wasn't immediately concerned about his well-being. He would wake up shortly, but until he did, she was stuck out there. 
She tries to drive the car out of the ditch, but can't get out. It was cold, and Tiffany's irritation towards Victor grew. So she decides that this man, what was his name again, she thinks, Victor something, this man would have to pay for passing out on her in the middle of nowhere. He would have to pay for trying to get her so drunk that she might have sex with him. He would have to pay, literally pay, for the rest of her drinks that night. So she pulled out his wallet and took whatever cash he had. She drops the wallet on the ground, and then she starts walking towards the lights of town. But during that chilly 15-minute walk back to the bar, she got to thinking about something. And it is this that could explain why she did not try to help Victor. She fully expected, at first, that Victor would wake up. And when he did, he would discover that she had robbed him. When he came back into town, it would be her word against his that she was even ever out there with him in the first place. And who knows, maybe Victor even had $500 in his wallet or more. If Tiffany was concerned about getting busted for robbery, suddenly it made more sense for her to not tell anyone that she'd been out there with them in the first place. But Victor does not come racing back into town to confront her, and in fact, he doesn't come back at all. And then, suddenly, Tiffany has two concerns. What if Victor dies? And two, where are her missing keys? What if she left them in his vehicle? And then maybe she realizes that she left the wallet laying on the ground with her fingerprints on them. The best scenario for Tiffany is that Victor woke up and went home. The worst scenario is that he dies. She can't decide what to do, so when this bartender named Hop Singh offers to give her a ride home, she does the only thing she can think of to play her cards right. If Victor still needs help, it would be great if her and Hop Singh just happened across him. But if Victor woke up and left and he is in no danger, Tiffany doesn't want to tell Hop Singh or anyone. So she does this weird thing where she wants Hop Singh and herself to come across Victor if he's still there. But if he's not there, she doesn't want to show her cards. But it's dark out there, the gravel road is hard to see, and she just can't find it. Hop Singh takes her back to Glen Ullen, and they find her keys at JR's. One less problem for Tiffany. She has her keys back, but... Perhaps, as the bars close at 1 a.m., that wallet on the ground haunts her a little bit. Maybe Tiffany decides she'll try to find Victor on her own after the town falls asleep. She goes to someone's house near the bar for an hour, but when she leaves, she gets pulled over by a cop right away. And the last thing Tiffany wants or needs is yet another DUI. Remember, she's in a drug rehab program called Teen Challenge. It is a live-in program, and Tiffany, Ashley, and Dave were out on pass. The idea is to stay clean and sober on pass, not get a DUI right away. So I thought, what if this happened? Tiffany wants to talk her way out getting a DUI. She needs an excuse, not that there are any, for why she would be driving under the influence of alcohol. Maybe her mind raced, and she asked herself what possible thing would be enough for a police officer to look the other way. An emergency, perhaps. What if I tell this cop that I only drove because I was on my way to save someone's life? I thought maybe she gave this a try and told the sheriff's deputy. Maybe he just blew it off, arrested the drunk native girl, as she called herself, and took her to jail.
Earlier I mentioned that I knew from the beginning that this story would not end in a happy ending. The question then became, which is the least sad of them all? We've heard plenty of sad stories already talking about Victor's life. His mother left him on Christmas, his brother was murdered, his half-sister killed herself. And I wondered, regarding the story of the end of Victor's life, what's worse, a woman leaving a man for dead and never trying to get him help at all, and then lying about it and claiming that she did, or law enforcement blowing off a woman's request for help, granted a selfish and self-serving and late request for help, but something at least. Tiffany's side of the story was that she told everyone I tried flagging down cars that drove by. I tried to get people from the bar to come help me find him. I was just the drunk native girl at the bar. I fucking told everyone and no one believed me. I told them when I got a DUI. I told them. There was no way for Tiffany to prove to me that she told Hop Singh or that she told everyone in the bar or that she waved down cars that passed her. But I realized one day that there was one thing I might be able to do to confirm or dismiss Tiffany's side of the story. All I had to do was get a hold of the audio and video recording of her DUI arrest. Of course, we've learned that audio and video recordings have a way of getting lost, but if I could get a hold of that video, and if I heard Tiffany tell law enforcement, well then, if nothing else, the sheriff's office would have some explaining to do, to say the least. Either Tiffany told the police officer, or she didn't tell the police officer. And if she's lying to us about telling the police officer, then she's probably lying about all of it. I made an open records request to Morton County, and a few days later, a DVD arrived in my post office box. I popped it into my computer and anxiously awaited to find out which sad ending was the real ending of this story. I'm 1035 with, or 1039 with Montana 16. Going to be on Main Street and Oak Avenue East in Glen Ellen, uh, possible 1055. This is uh, one of the individuals from the bar incident earlier. talked earlier. Yeah. Okay. Do you know why you're being pulled over? Um, no. Okay. You didn't even yield at that last intersection when you were crossing the street. We okay. We talked earlier, correct? Yep. You said you were pretty drunk. I was earlier, yes. Okay. That was only like an hour ago, correct? Um, yep. Okay. And you said that you weren't going to drive. Correct. I just, I just have my car, and I'm so sorry. Yeah, your your brother's on his way to jail right now. Okay. Okay, because he w was with. Um, I understand yeah. you and had a little incident also. Okay. Okay. But okay. here's the deal. I need to get a, your driver's license, okay. registration, and insurance from you. Okay. I'm so sorry. My uh, my older brother just drove by. He was coming to pick you up? Yep. Okay, then why didn't you wait? Well, I was trying to get out of that house. Yeah. My car wouldn't start, so I was just trying to pull over, and he, he just drove by. Yeah. Yeah. You told me that you, I mean, 
my, what, my, my, my biggest concern when I, when I left the bar was that you weren't going to drive. Yes, sir. I said that. I told you. That was my main concern, okay? Okay. And, and then you get on the road. And of I course, wasn't trying to, like, drive. Um, I was trying to get out of the house. Like, I just yeah. got my car, and I, uh, they drove it for me. It was uh, dead. Yeah. They dumped it for me. And uh, my brother just drove by a second ago. You see him. Yeah. But I'm not trying to, like, drive. I know, but you weren't, you weren't driving very well either, and the last thing I want, want you to do is get in an accident. No, you know what I mean? Because just for that short block that I was following you, um, you were swerving all over the road. Okay. Okay. He, my brother is driving some pickup, so I'm so sorry. Yeah, you, you said your driver's license is normally out of Montana. Yes. Sir. Okay, you but you don't have your Montana driver's license on you, or do you? I do. Yeah. Okay. My brother was in jail. Well, he's he wasn't. He's going in for just a detox because okay. we didn't have anyone to pick him up or do anything like that, and, okay. and got arrested for for DUI. Okay, I am not trying to get DUI, and I'm so sorry. Um, my brother just drove by, and I apologize to you. Like I am not trying to cause a problem for you. I'll spare you most of the rest of this almost one hour long recording. As you might have guessed, Tiffany never mentions Victor at all. But one thing to note, although Tiffany's test came back at 0.2% alcohol, which as I said is a lot, obviously Tiffany had a high tolerance. She does very well on the verbal sobriety test, counting backwards and reciting parts of the alphabet. And ending up the letter P as in Paul. Okay, perfect. If you can recite the alphabet, you can tell a law enforcement officer that someone might need assistance. And yes, even if she had told him, she would not have won any awards at that point. By this time, it had been two and a half hours since she left Victor laying next to his vehicle north of town. Apparently, the truth about this one part of the story is that Tiffany never asked anyone for help. I can't prove that she didn't ask others in the bar or wave down cars or anything, but I can prove with this video that she never told the officer. This part of her side of the story is false. I told them when I got a DUI. I told them. She didn't, though, and I guess of all the possible sad endings to Victor's story, this is his. I'd like to remind you that the story, the theory that you just heard, is my speculation. Yes, speculation based on 10 months of investigation, but nevertheless speculation. I have no proof, and how could I, that Tiffany ever struck Victor or stole any money. I still believe that facts are the cornerstone of truth, and yet I'd now like to explain to you something in which I have no facts to support, only faith in what I believe. I want to tell you how Victor chose me to tell 
his story. The band in heaven They play my favorite song They play it once again They play it all I've said from the beginning that this is my personal quest to explain another man's death. So with that in mind, let me tell you about my personal take on Victor's last moments and also I'd like to give you a message from him from Victor. It's completely up to you if you want to take the following with a grain of salt or not. I understand, and so does Victor. On about six or seven mornings over the last few months, I've sat in my living room chair while returning to life after sleep, and I've replayed a recurring dream in my mind, a dream that's been a type of puzzle. It's the perfect chair for doing this with the perfect cup of hot black coffee. I sit there enjoying that coffee, and I go over and over that dream, trying to put this puzzle together. Most of it never changes. Each time, Victor Newberry leans against the brick wall, takes a drag on a cigarette under the blue and pulsating neon bar sign. The headlights from taxis shine up and down the avenue, while groups of happy-go-lucky people stroll past us. They are full of chatter and laughter, and Victor takes in everything happily and contently, while I somehow struggle to understand. I know his next move, though. We will both follow a light in the sky, maybe an airplane or maybe a satellite, and then he'll snub out his cigarette, he will give me a nod, and he will disappear back into the bar. I can't for the life of me figure out why he's so happy. It feels like he has a secret or something that only he knows about, or at least he's not sharing it with me. It also feels like he thinks that this is all kind of funny. But each one of these six or seven dreams were all a little different, too. In the latest dream, which I have a feeling might have been the last of them, one thing that was drastically different was that it was the only time Victor spoke. And, as I would finally understand while drinking coffee in that chair, what he had to say or show me was a clue or piece of a puzzle. I thought it was a puzzle about his death, but, as it turns out, he wanted to show me something else. In that dream, Victor and I stand there by the sidewalk as a cluster of young parents pass us, pushing baby buggies and patiently holding the tiny hands of their young children. Victor speaks to me then, but while my eyes are on him, his eyes are on the group of parents and children. He says, quote, She dropped the wallet, unquote. She dropped the wallet. I follow Victor's line of sight, and I see that on the ground lies a Velcro wallet that a small child has dropped on the city street. The child is in a baby buggy, way too young, you would think, to own a wallet. None of the adults or anyone else has noticed this. The child has not even noticed herself as the group moves away from it down the sidewalk. Victor looks back at me and nods, and I dash to the wallet. I pick it up and stop the group of parents and return the wallet to its very young owner. The parents are more relieved and thankful than the child, who's too young to really know what's going on, but she clutches it in her tiny hands and holds it happily like a small teddy bear. I walk back, but Victor is gone. He's returned back into the bar. I take a peek through the window, and this time the crowd has changed. This time, Victor had the company of both men and women of all ages. Whatever gathering or meeting which had been taking place in my earlier dreams, that was over with. 
Gone were the silent and quiet men who always seemed to me to be burdened with guilt or remorse. Music was playing now, there was laughter and song, and Victor looked incredibly happy. After that last dream, sitting in my chair, trying to understand this all, I cradled a perfect ceramic cup filled with perfect hot coffee. And as I took a sip, I was met by the perfect morning view, as I always am from that spot in my living room. This view is both stunning and beautiful, but it also stings just a tiny little bit, too. It stings in a way that maybe only some of you will be able to understand. This perfect scene is not a sunrise or a waterfall or a view of prairie wildlife through my winter window. This perfect morning view is a framed photograph of two young women who are my daughters and who are now fantastic and wonderful young adult women. The sting, I feel, is something that perhaps only parents can recognize, and it has very little to do with my daughters and everything to do with myself. It's difficult sometimes to love someone or something as much as we love our own children. From the day our children are born, there are so many things we pray for. One of the things I foolishly did not pray for myself was that I would somehow figure out how to be a great parent. I didn't pray for it, I guess, because I foolishly thought I was prepared and ready. And maybe all parents feel that way. The sting I speak of is a mixture of feelings that I imagine many parents feel. Maybe it's different for everyone. Some feel anxious and fearful for their kids' future and safety. Some parents simply miss their adult kids so much they can hardly stand it. For me, that feeling is that I simply wish I'd been better as a parent in certain situations. Victor is a sneaky guy, I must say. He showed me that wallet scene in our dream, so I would finally put this all together. Once he showed it to me, he knew I'd figure out the rest. I figured out somehow that that dream, with the Velcro wallet falling from the child's baby buggy, that was a combination of two memories of actual events that happened in my life as a parent. They were both events that left me wishing I'd been there for my little girl. You may laugh when I tell you these events, but if you're a parent, you'll probably also recognize how you felt in those early years when you simply didn't want to see your young child have to deal with the inevitable facts of the world, the reality that we all have to deal with setbacks. I was pushing a baby buggy along the streets of Stockholm, Sweden in late 1994. My oldest daughter was only a year old or so, but she had a stuffed animal, a rabbit. It was her very first one. At some point that day, she must have dropped it. It must have fallen onto the sidewalk, just like that Velcro wallet Victor showed me in our dream. I was a clueless father walking along, and I completely missed it. We never got it back, of course. It was probably one of the first of many times to come that I wasn't quite there for my daughter, and although I know that a fallen stuffed animal may sound trivial, and although I know it wasn't my fault, that memory remains with me. It was the beginning of my very imperfect track record as a parent. And that other part of that dream with the Velcro wallet, that is also part of a parental memory of mine. My other daughter was about seven or eight years old, perhaps. She had received some money, I think from her grandmother, and the two of us were sitting at a bus stop, waiting to go into the downtown area of a city named Uppsala, again in Sweden. She was going to purchase something for herself with her own money, and she was so proud as she placed it in her little wallet, a wallet she then set down on the bench while tying her shoe or something. 
The bus came, we boarded it, and less than a couple blocks away, she realized that she had left her wallet and her money on the bench. Her tears were great and immediate, and of course, we got off the bus and took the next one back to check for it. She was young and so hopeful that somehow her wallet would still be there. I was older, maybe not wiser, but at least a little more experienced with life, and I knew both her wallet and her money would likely never be seen again. And of course, they were not. I scolded myself somehow for not helping her keep track of her wallet. Both of those events left me as a parent with a sting in my heart. I guess in the same way a child needs to learn about setbacks, a young parent should learn that they can never be perfect. I was far from perfect, and I regret not having tried harder in certain situations, situations that were more important than a fallen teddy bear or a lost wallet. All this time I thought I chose this story about Victor, but as it turns out, this story chose me. Or maybe Victor chose me because he knew I would be able to eventually spot something between the lines of this story. Between all the stuff about timelines and axe handles, death threats and police video, strangers and friends and autopsies, between all that, in the end, what I read between the lines is that Victor shares the same parental sting in his heart as I sometimes do, and so he chose me to get a message to his children. As we speak, Victor Newberry is in a bar. It's a bar named Heaven, or perhaps a bar in Heaven, and he's in a good place now. Other people are there too, and as that song goes by David Byrne of the Talking Heads, everyone is there. Brandon Belk is there, the young father who died after cleaning out a fracking tank in the North Dakota oil fields. He's there too. Victor's brother Johnny is there. They're all there. We don't know what time exactly Victor's heart stopped beating that night, but we do know when he became heartbroken. His heart was broke the day his mother left him. It probably broke again a little bit on the night he died when another woman walked away from him and apparently never came back. Victor regained consciousness before he died. He was angry at first, angry at being abandoned once again, but before he passed away he was mostly at peace. In fact, he smiled a little, if nothing else, internally, as he began to understand the irony of everything. It was then that he understood that chasing women had just been a way for him to try to win back the love from the one person who should have been there to give it to him in the first place, his mother, his parent. He would not have been lying there in the snow, he realized, if he had spent more time sending love to his children instead of looking for his lost love of mother. Victor will leave it up to us, the living, to decide how Tiffany should be judged. But he himself has mostly moved on, or at least he's been trying to move on. There's only one thing remaining that's keeping this man from fully enjoying his eternal night in a bar named Heaven. Because Victor knows that it's one thing to feel that your own parents could have and should have done things differently and much better. But while watching a light move across the sky, a satellite maybe, or was it an airplane, he couldn't tell. Victor lay there and he realized that it's a much heavier and more painful burden to carry to get to the end of your life only to understand that you yourself are one of those parents who could have done things much better. 
and he also knew it was too late to tell his children. And so Victor Newberry has asked me to tell his children, and for that matter his loved ones, that first of all, he's sorry. Mostly he's sorry that he was not a better father. He's sorry that he was not always there for his children when he perhaps should have been. He says he misses you, he loves you, please forgive me, he says. Victor had a message for me too, I believe. It's time for me perhaps to drop this surrogate life I've been living while telling this story. It's perhaps time for me to get back out there amongst the living and to live my life fully while I still can. And to all his friends in Glen Ullen, Donna and Doug, Brad Nesper, Ray and Tina, and to his friend Stephen, to all of us, he wants us to know that in the bar named Heaven, you never get drunk, or maybe you're always drunk, but it's always okay. Everything here is okay. Meanwhile, Victor says, spend more time with your daughters and your sons, if they'll have it. Tell them you know you've made mistakes because you have. Tell them you're sorry, you love them, and you miss them. I'll see you when you get here, and we can have a drink in a bar named Heaven. I want to leave you with one final thing. The last thing Victor thought about before passing away, perhaps, was one of his fonder memories in life. His sister Carolyn told me about this event. It was after his mother left and his parents had split up. Victor was a sad little boy, but one year on Halloween, his sister Carolyn helped him with a costume that cheered him up quite a bit. It was a little Native American or Indian costume. I'm going to leave you with some audio snippets from Carolyn and other various interviews about Victor. Thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1. Like to drink. He's a fun guy. He likes to get along with everybody. But he, um, he was like my best friend. Yeah, he was just a good person. He liked to dance, but I didn't. <laughs> so he danced with my niece Carrie. And we drank a lot together, either in my shop, or downtown, or wherever we were, out of town, in the camper. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think I remember one uh, Halloween. He went. We had uh, a Halloween party, and I and this was not long after his mother left. I remember how happy he was that night, and I was I was glad to see that because he's been you know really down in the dumps, and uh, he had his little costume, my little Indian costume. <laughs> And as a matter of fact, we talked about that. Not long before he died, he still had a really fun memory of that night. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.